Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. Uh, just first of all, apologies for the uh, technical difficulties that happened there with the news. I'm not sure why that one rounded out early. But either way, you're here with me, Kyle Dowling, here uh, coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here on Aranda Country in uh, Central Australia. We're, of course, uh, broadcasting right across the country through Fast Channel 911. We're 100.5 if you're here locally in Alice Springs, right? Ken FM. We're also, of course, uh, coming to you via the CAM website at karma.com.au. We could obviously be coming to you overseas, potentially. Uh, a big good afternoon to everyone. A good morning, I should say. This uh, Thursday, the 19th of uh, September 2019. I'm your host for the program today, Kyle Dowling, and I'll be taking you up until 12 o'clock today. We're going to be hearing uh, first up about... Uh, a recent uh, new opening here in uh, Alice Springs of the new Headspace Centre. So we're going to be hearing from uh, Roxanne this morning, who is going to be talking a bit about her role and, and trying to get uh, more Aboriginal people involved in Headspace, whether that be, you know, reaching out to the services if they perhaps may need some support or, you know, just uh, to have that connection or even to get involved in the services as well and, and looking to help support youth as well aged between uh, 12 to 25. We're also as well going to be hearing a report uh, from The Wire who uh, recently spoke to uh, Aboriginal artist, uh, musical artist Thelma Plum. So she's going to be talking about her latest album that came out, you know, a bit about the touring life and things like that and, and, and just a bit about herself and her process in terms of working through music and stuff like that as well. And of course, as well, we've got the uh, Desert Song Festival here in uh, in Bantua Alice Springs as well that's been running for a while now. So we're going to be hearing a bit about how that's been going as well here on Strong Voices this morning. And as per usual, as well, we will hear the latest in uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from uh, right across the country. We're going to be going to all that very soon. But first, here's a track from uh, Dan Sultan. Hey mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio. We're going to head into our first story now. Uh, Headspace uh, is here in Alice Springs. They provide free and confidential services to young people aged between uh, 12 to 25 years and that's supporting things like mental health, alcohol, as well as other drug counselling and they also able to survive doctors from the clinic as well for physical and sexual health. Well, uh, exciting news happened uh, last week with 
the uh, Headspace opening a brand new centre. We're going to be hearing from uh, one of the workers from the centre now talking a bit about her role uh, in terms of working with uh, youth, in particular Aboriginal youth, but also a bit about the opening and, and what that's going to mean. My name's Roxanne Heifel. I'm an Aboriginal woman. I'm from here. My family um, ties are from here, my maternal family. Um, I'm currently working at Headspace as the cultural advisor. Um, I only started here um, about three, four months ago, so um, I came over from Congress originally. So, If you don't know, Congress is the lead agent for Headspace. Yeah, so I've known about Headspace because previously I've worked um, on a project, a research project um, that required me to engage and um, work with some of the staff from Headspace. So um, I've known about Headspace. It's um, Headspace is 11 years old. I knew a little bit about what they've done. And so coming in, I actually uh, sought out a position here to come over to help out Headspace. And But it's a different um, program, um, a much-needed area that I think is needed for our young people to address, you know, the mental health and some of their um, issues that they've got going on. Coming into this space, I was really excited to get the opportunity to work here, have a specific role with specific targets that I need to meet. So my role is based around trying to increase Aboriginal client numbers into this space, make this place more, I guess, appealing for the Aboriginal community and really strengthen our partnerships with um, the other Aboriginal organisations around the place. So um, to be able to work here, I think, is quite a privilege for me. Congress is a major Aboriginal community-controlled health organisation. They have a lot of clinics in and around town, right? This clinic is specifically targeted at young people aged between 10 and 25, and it's for all young people who are needing some support, um, who just want to come in the door, get a check-up. We offer a GP service, not only um, psychological services for young people. Um, And it's specifically important for Aboriginal people to know that this service is included and welcoming for their mob and it just goes to show that regardless of who we are we respect Aboriginal community and we want to provide that service to them so uh, yeah so today it's our grand opening um, and we it's not a new service so people think oh a headspace new service it's just um, we went through transition over the last two months we were previously down at Hartley Street across the road from Anzac. We were lucky enough Congress secured this premise and so at the same time Headspace National was going through rebranding so we basically it it was like the universe aligned with the rebranding with these two new positions, my position and the youth coordinator um, position. We looked at how we can transition over here to um, this new premise but also look at how we can revamp and revive Headspace itself and um, promote it out there to the community so it's kind of like a revival for our service yeah the turnout was amazing actually you don't really know when you're planning for big events who's going to come along Um, you try and promote as much as you can in the community be able to get the word out through word of mouth Um, you know we send out invites to our stakeholders Um, we were lucky enough to have the head of communications and marketing for Headspace National visit us we sent a special invite and he came on behalf of the executive and the CEO, Jason Tathorn, 
just specifically for this event today. Uh, we had the executive team from Congress come down. We had a great turnout. Welcome to country by Mrs. Kumali Riley and and also the uh, youth uh, reference group members were able to talk about you know what this service is about from their perspective and why this is service is important for all young people. I think the most important thing about today was the fact that it was it was opened and led by young people um, like myself and the youth reference group who were given that opportunity to do so. And that's kind of our mantra for Headspace. Headspace National is it's you know it's youth driven, it's youth centric and it's um, you know if we're gonna provide a service to young people we make sure that we're getting that. We're aiming to do that with the advice and the input from young people. Today Malin and Gunnar, our um, community engagement officer and I were given the opportunity to MC the, um, the event this afternoon which kicked off at 3.30 and so we opened it up, did an introduction, acknowledged some special guests who came along, particularly you know, we had MLA Dale Wakefield down here which was for me very exciting to have her to come along there, a Minister for Territory Families but also um, we had the Youth Reference Group like I said talk about you know what they do and why Headspace is important you know, generally talking about mental health for young people because they too have used the services. And then we had Kumali do a welcome to country, which was really nice of her to do. And then followed by Sabella Turner, our cultural lead, talking about who previously um, was in a similar role um, a few years ago with Headspace and talked about, you know, why it's important for our mob to come down here. And um, it's a place for everybody, you know, you get your health check. It's not a place where you go when you're ritter or you know you've got you know it's not a place that it's not to be shamed about this is not a shameful place you know this is young people's places their health clinic uh, and then followed we so we tied up the ceremony today and then we um, cut the ribbon which was good um, I personally didn't cut it but um, the youth reference group members did um, and then we opened up the center for people to come in and have a look and see what this place is all about and how fantastic it looks and then we had cut the cake then Oh, the painting outside. It wasn't um, created by myself. Um, the idea didn't definitely come from me, so it was prior to me coming on board. Melanie uh, did an activity with some of the young people down the top mall, and I think it was earlier on this year. The painting's about our hills here through the gap, and she did like a connect the colours to the numbers, and the numbers had specific reference to them for young people to reference. Like what I understood was that. So, for instance, the colour green um, was about if you were a young person, you were born and bred here, go and paint in that green, like, hill, like, tree or something there. So, um, but what really that activity was about, what we were trying to achieve was uniting young people together, coming together, using art as a way to express their feelings, have an opportunity to sit down and have a talk and a yarn with one another. And yeah, we run a few activities like that here at, at the Headspace. So um, we're always wanting young people to come along and give us some great ideas or sign up to our youth reference group so we can pursue ideas or activities like that. So the youth reference group has been operating for a number of years now. It is basically 
a youth refuge group made up of young people from in and around town. Um, you don't necessarily have to have come here to, to wanting to register. And what they do, they meet up every like six to eight weeks and it's important, it is a mandate actually of Headspace to get that input and, and, and advice from young people about how do we make this service more youth friendly, how do we include young people, you know, basically get their advice and opinion. And so Melanie's in charge of that. I am wanting to establish an Aboriginal youth reference group. My background is, well, my interest is in that. I tried to get that up and running while being at Congress, but I know now I'm in a better position to do so here. The Aboriginal youth reference group will be a bit more specific around the needs of Aboriginal young people, and then how do we make this space more culturally respectful and appropriate for them to use our services. So that would be specific for them, and hopefully I'll kick off in the next couple of weeks. But the youth reference group, they're pretty vital and important to um, telling us what we should do about our service and how do we get out there and get them. And also they, they take part in the events and they help run with the events. So, um, yeah, they're pretty important groups. There is no other service or program provider in Alice Springs that has an Aboriginal youth reference group specific with all members Aboriginal. And I know that because I've looked into it. And if we do get one, it'll be first of its kind for particularly Headspace and for um, Congress. The group is about enabling young people to, well, giving them an opportunity to come to a space that they feel welcome, that they can take on leadership opportunities, provide them with that capacity building for them. We want to grow them so that they feel comfortable and we can upskill them and give them leadership um, skills so that they can um, be recognised as you know, up-and-coming leaders, get them involved in community events like we do with the youth reference group, offer them opportunities to, you know, attend um, training or go to conferences and, and, and actually promote on that level our services. So also it's an opportunity for them to provide feedback through Headspace up into Congress as well. So, you know, there's a lot of focus on early childhood and there's a lot of focus on the elder population, but there isn't much around town and it's a much needed area to focus on for young Aboriginal people. So having, if we, were, if we are successful in getting this group together, they will be um, well sought after, And um, but we definitely want to support them through this and upskill them and be our next, they are our next leaders. So that's why it's important to have an Aboriginal youth reference group. So for what I understand in my role, particularly the social issues, I would say, um, there, there are a lot of issues that are um, facing young people, you know, um, issues that are part of just growing up, um, issues that are unique and, and um, to grow Alice Springs for them. I think some of the issues that I know that they want to, or what I've understood from talking to young Aboriginal people, is that they want to feel welcome, they want a space and an opportunity for them to come together and feel like they're being listened to, feel like they're being um, respected in that sense and, and, and a way that actually their voice, we, 
I'm here to help raise that voice for them. And that's my job, essentially, to raise that voice up, help with um, get their message across, out to our stakeholders, up to government, up to other organisations, so that they can be in a position to talk about what they want for them um, and also in a position to make it clear what their issues are because what I've seen for a while now is that there's a lot of conversation and decision making made on behalf of young people but without their input and without their guidance and that's what we need to know from these young people. How can we better understand your issues and how can we better support youth to come forward and, ha- and move on and, and, and just come up with ways that we can support them. So it's really up to them what they identify and how we can help them. Um, hey mob, um, if you're interested, you know, come down and see me, Roxanne here at Headspace. You know, I'm pretty friendly. You can come along, come and talk to me about anything really. I mean, nece- you don't necessarily need to come in and see the GPs or the psychs and that. You can come and chill out or come and sign up if you really want to make a a difference, if you really want to talk about what's on your mind, let's, yeah, let's come together with other like-minded young people and, yeah, and make a difference through that way, so... There's no shame. There's no shame in talking about mental health. There is no shame in owning your health problems or issues or even being able to help yourself, you know. And there's no shame in, you know, talking to anybody about it. Um, There are services out there. There are people that actually do care for you. So, yeah, just think about that. You're not alone. That was Roxanne from Headspace who was speaking with uh, Chris Fitzpatrick uh, last week during the opening uh, of the uh, new Headspace Centre. was speaking to uh, Karma Online News. Uh, we're going to be going to a break now and then we'll be back very soon here on Strong Voices. You're listening to Strong Voices coming to you from the studios of Karma Radio in Alice Springs. If you have a story that you would like us to cover, please get in contact with us. Send us an email to news at karma.com.au or give us a call on 0889 That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices. We're going to head into our next story now. Uh, the Desert Song Festival 2019. It's, it's, this year was the seventh festival and saw singers and musicians, choirs and uh, audiences from Alice Springs, Central Australia, all coming together. Uh, with visiting musical artists presenting a series of events that showcase incredible music musical talents. Uh, Festival director Morris Stewart uh, joins Karma's Paul Wiles. And welcome back to the program. Well, the 2019 Desert Song Festival has uh, come to its conclusion. Morris Stewart is the festival director. He joins us uh, live in the Karma studio. Morris... Uh, Another successful festival. Yeah, thank you, Paul. It's uh, good to be with you and your listeners. Great year, great year. Uh, we, I think from the time we started, we've had really good festivals. I think sometimes great festivals. But this one this year has just been off the charts. Everyone who was involved has said that. Listen, mm. you know, audience, uh, so many performers, yeah. Morris, I'd just like to... We were just talking Mm. off air, but Mm. um, your journey in Central Australia, just 
just tell the listeners, um, hmm. I mean, you're not a, a newbie at this. You've <laughs> no. been coming backwards and forwards. Uh, the journey, tell us about well, it. Well, I think in 1995, I went up to Yundamu with my daughters, some young people from Melbourne, because we had some friends who were working up there and we wanted to visit them. But also, um, actually, you're probably young. Uh, Liam Campbell was one of them just left school and uh, we went up to visit him and to visit some teachers who were working there. But um, Barb had travelled through the Kimberley the year before and she was particularly keen to make connection with... Your wife? My wife, Barb, yes, yes. Um, she was particularly keen to make connection with people in the desert. And that was a, an incredible experience. And our daughter's came back. Of course, one of them lives in Alice now. Another one did her teaching practice there. And Barb, over many years, ran what I could only call cultural learning tours, bringing up women, families from Melbourne to go out bush and just sit down with the, with the old ladies, the elders. She had talked to them about this idea. Can, can I bring some friends up? She said, we're not, gonna, we're not coming up here to do anything. We just want to sit down and listen and learn from you. That's and, a, an interesting story in itself. Yeah, I mean, it bearing is. in mind that um, you, you and your wife, I don't mm. know how long you'd been living in Melbourne at that yeah. stage, but you had yeah. been living in London. Yeah, we, well, ours is an interesting story. I met my, I come from South America. I lived in London for 13 years, 14 years. Met Barb in London. We got married. We had three children. We lived a couple of years in New Zealand, and in the late 70s, we moved to Perth because um, I had some. I was, I was a youth work sort of professional, and I had some work there. And um, so she came home, <laughs> and then we eventually moved to Melbourne a few years later. And I mean, I when I arrived in Australia, the first thing I did was I started reading sociology. You know, Humphrey McQueen. Um, um, you know, the great Australian stupor, Manning Clark, and as much Aboriginal text as I could because I just wanted to know what was what this country was about. You get one narrative uh, if you read certain things and you get a different narrative if you actually dig deep. So, yeah, it goes back to when I first arrived in 1978. Um, but our association with Central Australia has been that's since 1995 and um, we, we've just continued that association ever since. Uh, our purpose was never to come and fix anything, tell people how to sort their problems out. I think that's very arrogant and actually if I may say so, it's one of the main reasons for public policy failure. <laughs> um, but anyway, we wanted to make friends, basically, and we've made a lot of friends over the years, in the context of which we've been invited to share struggles, and as you do with friends, eh? That's what happens. And uh, I think we've been a lot more effective. We, I think Barb and I have saved the government a lot of money by just listening to people and you know, if they want some support from us, offering bringing our skills to bear on that, and they've they've taken the lead in changing things and solving their own problems. I guess we've you know we've got skills in removing barriers and things like that, but um, yeah, that, so that's that's been part of our association, as you know. Over the years, we've gone from the Walpuri connection to uh, connection across Western Ireland, the Pitinjara, uh, Majara, you know. Uh, Pindapi Lurisha because of the, the invitation of those people for me to work with them as a musician, something I never thought would um, 
be as effective as it is in in opening up Australia to uh, to the Aboriginal story, mm. the real story of resilience um, and strength, rather than the the what I call the propaganda of focusing on real problems, but you just ma- but making those problems define Aboriginal people. Mm. Morris, um, you do live in Melbourne. Yep. And obviously, uh, you're walking in many different worlds with many different A people. few, yes. Mm. But um, the, the journey, your journey of learning mm-hmm. and your learning of Aboriginal culture yep. and knowledge mm-hmm. um, over, over that period of mm-hmm. time. And then, yeah. uh, you know, you're down in the city and you're engaged in conversations with non-Aboriginal yes, people. Yes, yes, yes. Um, what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong? Um, I call it the original sin. <laughs> you know, we have a we have a problem in Australia of not facing the dark bits of our past. You know, and you know, we, the Aboriginal people are right when they talk about invasion and lack of treaty and lack of agreement, lack of recognition. Those aren't points that we need to argue. They're facts. <laughs> you know, and I think. I think our our refusal to engage in the process of truth-telling and truth-learning is making us sick. We're not going to solve the Australian dilemma until we deal with that reality. And it's no good saying we didn't do it. We didn't do anything to anyone. We benefit from it, mate. We benefit from that original injustice. And and every generation needs to recognise that and do something to redress it and put it right. Uh, do you understand what I mean by we benefit from it? Yes. We do. Our lifestyle now is built on um, on Aboriginal disenfranchisement and Aboriginal, in, you know, the injustice that's been done. And if, if it's been done, there's no benefit in pretending that that's not part of our history and trying to cover it up or trying to rationalise it. Every time we do that, the psychological sickness increases. Hmm. This so-called journey of reconciliation (laughs) that we've been on for 20, 30 years, uh, Mm -hmm. um, governments come and go, but, I mean, basically at the heart of the reconciliation process, there's a lack of desire to want to address what you've just spoken about. Yeah, we want everybody to be nice, but we don't want to deal with what's made the thing ugly in the first place. And, you know, I I, I formed this community choir in Alice Springs, just a little anecdote. And regularly, our very nice um, rehearsals would be interrupted by drunk people coming in and spoiling everything. And I had a way of dealing. I, I would always include them. I'd talk to them. I'd ask them to sit down. I'd, I'd hug them. I'd get them to sit next to me while I'd conduct with one arm while holding them. And people say, oh, you should ring the night patrol, this, that, and the other. And I would say to my choir, as the young people would say, you just suck it up. This is what it means to live in a country where we've harmed people. We're not going to be able to run a very nice rehearsal without it being interrupted by the disadvantage. So get real, you know, just get used to it. Mm. That's what's going to happen. You're sitting in, in your, do, 
alfresco dining, you're going to be humbugged because we've done something to disturb what would have been the normal human relationship process. And if you wouldn't face it, it's going to keep chasing you, chasing you, chasing you until you do. <laughs> yeah. Morris, you've, you've travelled the world with the choir. Yeah. Um, and, and again, we had the, this discussion previously about yeah. um, how members of the choir felt more accepted by people overseas than they do in their own country. But again... Your conversations at the level when you're overseas, um, sharing Australia's history, what? How do people react to that? I mean, bearing in mind that Australia is a now a, a first nation globally, yeah. at least economically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but here we are; we still have the first nations peoples living in poverty. Yes, um, people overseas are very aware of this. Um, I mean, Germany, the country that we first visited with the choir, Germany is a country that is one of the things I learned. They're really prepared to look at the dark part of their past. They they don't shrink from it. And uh, that's one of the things I came back to Australia with, that contrast. But Germans have been really um, shocked by the way we treat Aboriginal people. But also, um, people are fascinated to meet Aboriginal people and and discuss this, these issues with them and express support. I mean, in the film, The Songkeepers, one of the choir members said, you know, we get treated better here than ever we do at home. And it reminded me of a woman from the Kimberley, a very successful Aboriginal woman, who in an interview said, it's only when I go overseas that I feel Australian. Everyone sort of, you know, overseas just warms and respects me. And then she said, you know, I come back home. I walk through the customs hall and the dark cloud ascends. So eloquent. And it, 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 it moves me to tears because I know what that means. I know what they're saying. And it shouldn't be so in our lucky country. It shouldn't be so at all. Mm. We should be so proud that we are inheritors of a human history of 60,000, 70,000 years, of people who learnt the smarts of how best to live in a country like this yeah. for 60,000, 70,000 years. And in that, in that human history is, is the wisdom, the, the capacity of resilience that we're not learning from. And we're the poorer for it. We're good at a lot of things. And it's a wonderful country, but this thing is at the heart. It's like a festering sore, and we have to we have to deal with it. Morris, um, you're a, an educated man, you're a global <laughs> citizen. Um, yeah. When we talk about cultural knowledge, mm-hmm. um, virtually since colonisation, the colonisers have viewed Aboriginal knowledge as being pretty second rate. I mean, mm-hmm. what is there to show for the knowledge? Now, I'm interested in your connection at, yes. the, at the grassroot level. Yeah, well, 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 here's a... I think that you have to make one critical decision to adopt that view. And the critical decision is to assume that you're a better and a higher form of human than the other person. Now, wherever do we get that notion from? It's utter nonsense. You know, I don't want to say that I'm a 
you know, paragon of great virtue, but it has never occurred to me, maybe it's because I'm a black man, it's never occurred to me that I'm a higher level of human being than anybody else. But, but people do that. It infuses our intellectual, um, uh, you know, this capacity, our cache of knowledge and our cultural view. You know, we turned Darwinism into social Darwinism because we made that one decision. Now, one, I'll, I'll give you a little story that illustrates why I think that is so foolish David Attenborough, David Attenborough, the great David Attenborough, has just done a series on the Great Barrier Reef. And watching that program, they had, they had these seismologists and these geologists map the Barrier Reef before the waters rose. They had all the scientific knowledge. And then the rumor got to them that there was a group of people up there in North Queensland, of, of Aboriginal people, who had stories of 10,000, because the reef is about 10,000 years old, they had stories handed down from generation to generation of when there was no reef, when the waters were lower. And they, and so David visited them and they laid out the story about the history of the reef and how the waters came and how, where the shoreline was before and everything. And it, it clicked in exactly with what the scientists discovered. The same thing happened in, our, in central Australia with those meteorite craters off the Lurritja Road where geology and Aboriginal law meshed. People need to open their... their just because you don't write things down and just because you couch things in stories... For, for, for sacred and secure transmission doesn't mean you haven't got any knowledge. You know, you, you go up to Kakadu and we say, what a natural wonder. It is, but it's also a human artifact. The, that, that's the depth of Aboriginal knowledge. And I've just given you three examples. <laughs> We're not going to mention, you know, the settlements in Tasmania. We're not going to mention the fact that people worked the land that, in such a way that they had time to reflect and develop religion and philosophy and so on, which they did, and stories. We're not going to mention the recent World Heritage Area in Victoria, you know, which, which had infrastructure for, for farming, for aquaculture. We're not going to mention a huge grain belt that was over the middle of Australia. Do I need to go on? <laughs> well, the knowledge is there, and it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, Morris. Um, just before we go, um, mm. we started off talking about <laughs> Desert Song 2019. Yes, yes. Yeah. The highlights for you? Look, it's the International Year of Indigenous Languages. We had choirs from South Africa singing in Zulu. We had a choir from Vanuatu singing in Bislama and Nakanamanga, two languages. We had the Central Australian Aboriginal Women's Choir singing in English, in Pitanjara, in Western Islander. Um, and we taught, we taught, we sent everyone home with just a little um, knowledge, just a little cache of indigenous languages. Um, I think the highlight was the connection, for me, was the connection between the choirs and performers. It was electric, the, the forging of connection. And this wasn't only within 
the choir performance group it was also the audience it was a it was an incredible celebration of who we are and who we can be but there was another highlight too and that was the invitation from this group led by the retired melbourne judge peter vickery recognition in anthem to premiere um you know a revision of our national song and you know it's you know it's it's a draft but it's an amazing um, opportunity that we had to premiere this, and it captured the, I think it captured the nation's attention. Um, the press was certainly involved in it, and the audience responded to it. In fact, I was just looking through some Facebook pa- page, and there were negative people, you know, but, but the, the negativity was 0.8%. It was incredible. There is an appetite because that national song's got. A, I mean, people don't like the tune. They they think it's terrible. We should adopt. Um, I am. You are. We are. Are Australian. So I look. I. <laughs> that's probably a bridge too far for this recognition in anthem. They're, they're taking a gradualist approach, but it's a very courageous approach and they've done some great work with the second verse so what i'm going to do i've put to them that we should we should really get the second verse sung because we don't even know the current second verse get the second verse sung put it out there get choirs communities schools to sing it get somebody like you know some a great orator's voice like jack thompson or somebody like that to actually read that second verse and have that going out you know every now and then a little commercial that says for 60,000 years and more first peoples of this land just just put it out there and then get people singing it for 60,000 years or more and Maybe that'll become the first verse because actually the first verse is the one that really needs to be rewritten. But they did put in one word. Instead of young and free, it was strong and free. Do you know something? In all the time I've, you know, been with Aboriginal people, I have never heard Aboriginal people sing the national anthem. Never. I I don't know if you have, but I've never heard them sing it. Never. But our choir women did translate the first verse of it and they made a very significant omission, but I'm not going to tell the public about it. <laughs> I'll leave them to guess. But, they, but, but if there was a song that represented who they were and did a bit of truth-telling, they will sing it. Morris Stewart, once again, many thanks. Thank you. Yes, that was uh, the Desert Song Festival director, Morris Stewart, speaking with Kalmas Powals here on Strong Voices. We're going to head to a track now and then we'll be back with the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Cam Radio. Well, now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio Kalmas Paul Wells. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Carl, and good morning, listeners. Well, I understand the story you've got for us this morning is in regards to uh, talking a bit about the coverage of Aboriginal stories in mainstream media, Paul. That's correct. Um, Labor Senator Pat Dodson has taken a swipe at the mainstream media for poor and overly negative coverage of uh, First Nations issues. Uh, Despite a proliferation of Indigenous media organisations since the 1960s and their role in changing mainstream attitudes... 
The senator says he still wonders whether much has changed. Um, senator Dodson, a Yauru man from Broome, uh, launched the National Aboriginal Press Club in Canberra uh, yesterday. Uh, he said that uh, there's always been in the mainstream media a fundamental bias against uh, Aboriginal stories and there's a maxim in the game that black stories don't rate. Mainstream media really need to come to a better understanding of Indigenous cultures and their rich histories. They need to appreciate that Indigenous voices are valid and alternative. Um, Senator Dodson um, mentioned a study that found mainstream reporting of Indigenous Australia was increasingly focused on violence, conflict and corruption and often appeared unwilling to engage with complex issues. He rejected the assumption that bad news stories perform the best. So we will um, yeah, see if we can't find uh, Senator Pat Dodson's um, address too. Um, the Aboriginal Media Association, which is a, a new formation of a new body. Mm. Um, we'll try and find out some of the details around that, but also uh, uh, see if we can't catch up with Senator Pat Dodson to um, share his thoughts. Mm. Definitely would be interesting to hear them. Well, uh, on that note, Paul, thank you so much for quickly joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Hi, guys, this is Dan Sutton, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. We're going to head into our final story of Strong Voices now. Uh, following the release of her new album, uh, her debut album, I should say, uh, Better in Black Indigenous artist Thelma Plum is now going to be taking uh, to the road as she goes through a, a range of different upcoming tours that she's got and live uh, shows across the country. She's covered themes uh, throughout her music, uh, such as racism, sexism, as well as, well as uh, things like uh, heartache and through her sort of personal journeys going through life. The wise are Nahum Gale spoke with Thelma Plum and files this report. I take a lot of my inspiration from stuff that's happening in my life. I sing a lot about my trauma and a lot about growing up and a lot about my personal experiences. So I feel like that's when most of my inspiration comes, just from, you know, my day-to-day -day life. Do you find your heritage as an Indigenous Australian woman something that inflames the empowerment behind your music? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it very much does. I sing a lot about what that looks like for me, being an Aboriginal woman in this country and what that feels like and what that looked like growing up for me. And yeah, I can't really escape that. That's, you know, that's who I am. I'm an Aboriginal woman. And I guess that comes out in my music because that's who I am. <laughs> From Better in Black, what specific record do you reflect on most as a sentimental standout? One of the songs that is like dearest to me that I've written is Homecoming Queen, which is on the album. I wrote that about growing up in this country and what that looked like for me and what that felt like and it not being that easy, not having people that looked like me represented in mainstream media. So I feel like that's probably the song that I hold in the highest regard out of all of the songs I've written. Better in Black appears as the title of your single, your album and your tour. So what makes that a crucial song for yourself? It's a song it's about empowerment and I remember writing the song and then just being so sure that that's what I wanted to call the album. I think it represents me as a person and so I wanted that to kind of be the main focus. Being on tour now, do you feel like life on the road is more fulfilling in ways of songwriting? Yes. <laughs> 
I love being on the road and I guess I get in this real like gig mode where I'm just kind of focused on these shows and I don't really make time for myself to sit down and write, which is something I used to do all the time, I guess, before it became such a job for me. I used to kind of go away to cities and do that, but it would be a bit, you know, looser and a bit more fun or whatever and I guess a bit more casual and I would write a lot on the road then, but now not so much anymore, but, you know, I will be inspired by things and I'll make sure, you know, my notes are always like in my iPhone always very full and filled with random little lines that I've picked up here and there. So when you do songwrite, do you start with lyrics or do you start with a beat or how does your process go? I guess I have a melody in my head and then I'll kind of sit down on the piano or with the guitar and then figure out what sounds good with it. But often, you know, maybe I'll be playing guitar and we'll find some chords that I really like and and then we'll make a melody to that. Or if I'm co-writing, you know, with someone else and say like a producer and they might have a beat already and, you know, I'll come into the studio and just sing something on top of the beat that's already existing. I actually don't have like a favourite way either. It always just kind of changes all the time. So sometimes I, for like three months, I will write mostly piano or sometimes I'll write to beats and stuff like that. So it just really depends how I'm feeling. Where's your favourite place to play in Australia? When I play in Adelaide, everyone's always really respectful and really nice, you know, in the audience. I find whenever I would go anywhere, most other places in Australia, everyone just gets so insanely drunk. <laughs> so I really do love playing in Adelaide. And I guess, you know, I love playing in Brisbane as well because it's hometown. So that's always really special. Yeah. Having worked with artists like Paul Kelly, is there any future collaborations you'd like to get under your belt and for what reasons would that be? I have a very long list of people in my phone that I want to work with. I don't even know where to begin, but I guess like a dream collab would maybe be like Mark Ronson. I feel like that would just be like a dream, but I just have so many people that I want to work with. Out of all your favourite albums, what album could you not live without? Probably... I feel like maybe a Fleetwood Mac album or Blood Orange. They're two artists that I really like listening to. Yeah, I'm going to go with Fleetwood Mac because I listen to that most days, every single day. So I'll say that. So what's your favourite Nick Cave song? Uh That's so funny. (laughs) I really like Dirty Three. So Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, I love them. But you know what, if I'm being honest, but this is so lame because this is what everybody... I feel like would assume would be my favourite but this is what I wrote my song Nick Cave about but the Where the Wild Things Grow which is with Kylie and I guess that's one of his more like pop mainstream you know songs but oh, I reckon that What's next on the horizon for you? I've got the choice of Antour which is going to be pretty big and then I uh, I head overseas so I'm going to go over to London and Paris and do some like some shows there, some showcases and I guess try to play for some people there and and then I've come back for New Year's Eve because I've got Falls Festival which will be really exciting and then early next year I'll probably you know try to fit in another tour maybe another single who knows with your music you've been able to represent people like yourself in mainstream media in a more successful light so would you have any advice you'd want to give aspiring artists out there I do, and it would be to not be apologetic and that it's okay to take up a lot of space. I think that that's something that we're taught from a very young age is, you know, to reduce ourselves and make ourselves small so we don't, you know, offend people by existing. And so I would say just be unapologetic, be yourself, and that 
now there's no excuses there's room for us and we've created that room and yeah I just think yeah just go for it that was musician Thelma Plummer ending that report from the wise uh, Nahim Gale that's going to conclude Strong Voices for today thanks for tuning in we'll be back tomorrow with a recap of the stories from the week Strong Voices